We're back for another episode of the Truth and Legend podcast. It's uh, episode 14, I believe. And today we've got a guest from New Zealand. His name is Mike Williams. It's great to have you on, Mike. Thanks, Michael. I appreciate it. You know, I've been following you guys for a while and really excited to be a part of what, what you guys are doing and um, have a chat with you guys today. Yeah, we have a really interesting story about how I met Mike. Um, so we'll get into that a little bit later. Before we do that, there's been a couple of things that happened since our last podcast, and I thought it'd be fun to talk about. And Mike, you feel free to jump in at any time. This is stuff that we've talked about already, so I know that these two guys will have something to say about it. But um, the first one is, did you guys see the latest stories about AI? No. No? I don't watch news. I wasn't either. I was cruising YouTube, like I always do. Okay. And uh, Marcus Brownlee, you know, I don't forget his name. I mean, his name of his channel, MKB or something like that. Yep. Anyway, he's one of the top tech podcast guys yep. or YouTube guys. And he puts out of this thing on this new AI video generator. Oh, and no. so I watched oh, it and he's like, holy moly. He's like, it's pretty bad. And you'll know it's video. You know, knowing you're watching something that was created by AI, you get it. But if you didn't know, then it's going to pass in a lot of people's, you know, daily lives. They're going to be like, yeah, whatever, that's real. So it's scary how good it is right now. And it's only going to get better, right? So if you get a chance, go look at it. I think it's called Soma or Sonoma or I don't know. But, you know, I was always thinking, well, <laughs> it's not going to be able to do video like we do video. But right. It's pretty close. There's there's a bunch of samples. And what why I'm talking about is because he was very serious about it. And he was very like, hmm, this is something to be looked at. And then I saw it on a news story this morning when I just turned on the morning news. So it's already covered on the news. So uh, they, they have a camera that's going through an old west like town. Mm-hmm. Totally 100% created by AI. And it's horses and buggies and people walking down dirt roads and old storefronts and it's a fly through and it's, if you saw it for a split second, it would be totally possible. And he's like, this world of stock footage is going to be gone. Hmm. <laughs> you guys don't have anything to say other than. Is that hmm. the one that I saw? I did see one that was like a text to video. I don't know anything you, about it other than they were like, hey, check this out, and here's yeah. the shots, and that's I all. saw a new one where it's like if you just input text, and then it can create the video. Yeah, that's that. essentially what it does. Yeah. Yeah. But they had one on there where they showed some wolf pups. Um, it's good, but these wolf pups kind of just appear out of nowhere, which is kind of weird. They had one of some golden retrievers, puppies, playing in the snow. That one is legit. That one is really real. It's nuts. Um, I dropped the link in the chat. It's called, it's from OpenAI and it's called Sora, S O R A. Sora. Yep. Which is nuts. Uh, I guess I should eat crow. I didn't bring any crow to eat after my last comments on the last podcast of me being like, I don't think it's going to change anything. <laughs> so I guess I'll have to bring the crow for next time. But. <laughs> It's a, it's crazy. And I'm thinking, okay, so what, I mean, it's going to be a really slippery slope to, I mean, I'm thinking, okay, there's no way that they're going to do what we do out in the field, but 
can they make the animals look different enough from the others? Or are they all kind of the similar? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Wow. Well, right now they're all the same, very similar, but yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it looks, it's nuts. It, I mean, it looks like little golden retriever puppies, not, not like a stuffed animal or anything like that. And it has like snow in the background. There's trees. Yeah. It has the fall off effect. Like if you're using a shallower depth of field. So isn't that crazy? Know. But here's my thing. Could you have it read a textbook? Like let's do uh moose man's book or Mark Raycroft wrote a book on moose and he yeah. does a lot of describing of what moose look like and that kind of stuff. Or um, any of these books, could you feed it all that information? So it gets enough, detailed information so like to your point mike is that going to describe the differences in moose enough where it would be able to recreate i always thought the nuance you know is it going to be able to recreate the the little nuance you find around a rut pit or with bears where you get the interaction between cub and sow or mama bear or even like elk antlers you know each one's a little different yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I don't know. It's gonna get. It's gonna get wild. I think we're gonna have to just make sure that there's. It's the human nuance, right? It's just being an individual that's gonna separate stuff. I don't know. Maybe not. Well, they could probably take the light out of the <laughs> issue, right? They can always put it in perfect, perfect evening and morning light, right? If they're gonna do it that way, which is gonna be. A challenge in Alaska, yeah. right? That's quite different than you're not going to get right. that. Yeah. All right. One more thing. Um, last week we, or a couple episodes ago, we talked about workflow. Mm -hmm. We talked about Chronosync. We talked about some of the stuff that we use to help manage our lives. As I mentioned earlier, I think on the podcast, Brandon was over here yesterday and brought his NAS drive because with NAS drives, you can have them talk to one another and you can keep a backup offsite. Essentially that's what it's intended or one of the things that you could do with it. Well, it was very slow and we're dealing with terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of data when you're dealing with red files and GoPro files and all this stuff that are four gigabytes at a, at a time or at a chunk. So Brandon brought his drive over and I decided let's use Chronosync to sync our two drives. We have them, uh, separated out. So we have like a truth and legend. Um, what would you call it, Brandon? I can't even think of the word right now. It's like a volume. A volume. So mine is huge and Brandon's is huge, but I've allocated, I don't know, 20, 20 terabytes to truth and legend. So we just took those two truth and legends, one off of his, one off of mine. We used Chronosync to sync it and it worked great. But it was 20 some odd hours into it this morning from when I set it up yesterday and it was still chunking away. So I'm like, Oh my gosh, I had to shut it off because I was running out of space on my end. So now I'm having to take stuff off of mine that I know is backed up and off of his put it. I went to, Oh, here's one other little tidbit. Went to Costco this morning to pick up a hard drive to do this. Cause they have, it's right down the street from me and, you can pick up 14 terabyte drives. It's not going to be beneficial when this podcast comes out, but right now they have 14 terabyte drives for 150 bucks. Wow. Nuts that you can get that big of a space for that kind of cost. Yeah. 
So anyway, I went and did that. So now I'm having to do it all. But it just is amazing to me that it just takes so much time to manage your data. And I just thought it was worthy since we just talked about workflow and yeah it did such a good job we had done such a poor job (laughs) that it fixed all of our so what happened is we added off the nas right but we didn't back up the nas remember i talked about i don't have my drives synced out and i instead have the the date and then the workflow subject well on the nas that's how that was all set up but on the drives i have it set up as like 1003 and so it just turned into a disaster. And so we were like duplicating files that yeah. one of us, it was just a mess. And so it's doing exactly what it wanted to. And it was syncing everything and we'd have everything there. But it was all of a sudden like, no, Michael has this red fo- or doesn't have this red footage because he has it backed up somewhere else. And we were trying to free up space, but Brandon still has it because it hadn't synced. And it was just growing and growing and growing. So... It just speaks to our her, our whole workflow conversation and it speaks to being as organized as possible because the more this goes on, I think the, I mean, it just is terrible. It just becomes this huge, what do they call it? A quagmire. <laughs> uh, I do have one more and then we can jump into the guest. Okay. We got our first mean comment. Oh, we did. I saw that. I saw that. I'm so excited. We haven't had a mean comment in like a year. So this is great. We just need a few more and then we can do like one of those like reading the mean comments. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I don't know. I might cry just because I'm like, yeah. I don't know. I'm a wuss. But I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> he insulted yeah. our, our the color of our skin. He obviously doesn't know that I'm brown. <laughs> well, and I called Brandon when I saw it. I'm like, what do I do? Do I just delete it? Do I hide them from the channel? Is the algorithm going to hate us because we're taking off a comment? But when it's derogatory like that, I mean, you should be able to just take it off and not worry about it. So I don't know. We're leaving it though. We love haters. So my outlook is you'll never have a bigger fan than a hater because they're going to watch everything you do. (laughs) They're going to comment on everything. They're our biggest fans, people. I'll send them a free shirt. (laughs) <laughs> see my my immediate reaction is to go find him and put him on an island with no technology at all and i'm just drastic that way and brandon's like no let's use it as an educational opportunity right i'm like you are so You're right optimist yep he's yeah. so much better than i am when it comes to that anyhow all right let's get to you mike so um i think before we go into how you and i met Maybe we could go into a little bit of your history because it's pretty cool and it's pretty, uh, it's a bigger and more colorful history than most of us have considering where you live and what you've done so far. So could you just give us like a little background? Yeah. So um, I've kind of jumped around a lot. Um, I grew up outside of New York City. So from um, just a suburb around there and um, always loved animals, always wanted to work with them or do something with them to some capacity. And um, that led me eventually to go out to university at University of Arizona. I studied animal science um, where Arizona kind of gave me the taste for the West a little bit with, you know, the, the, the bigger mountains, the bigger landscape. And um, I studied 
animal science working with um, horses. So I'll, that kind of led me to um, the thoroughbred industry. So I trained and worked with horses for collectively, including university, maybe 10 years. Um, in between that, I, uh, I worked at uh, Denver Zoo as an intern, which kind of connects you guys a little bit there. Um, and after, after university, I worked at a, a thoroughbred stud farm for several years back in New York, but I just love the West so much once I got the taste for it. So <clears throat> my college roommate is from Colorado. So I said, you know, screw this. I got to get it back out to Colorado somehow and doing something. So I moved out outside Denver um, and my soon to be wife, which um, didn't know at the time, but she worked at Littleton Equine Medical Center, which is not far from Brandon, I presume, down on um, cool. South Santa Fe there. Um, I don't know nope. if you're familiar with, with yeah, so it's yep. it's just on South Santa Fe. I mean, it's, Littleton's not that big, but um, so yeah, I was working there with horses with yeah. her and I met her and um, she was um, a great person for me because I loved, I had all these grand ideas of going to Alaska, going to Australia, all these amazing things, but it's pretty intimidating to just up and leave and do these big grand adventures. And she loves traveling. She loves planning. She loves doing all this stuff. So we, we worked out quite well together for, um, for our future of, of travel and um, adventure. Um, so once, once she finished up her, she had a short-term position there and she went back to New York to, she became a, a surgeon. So um, we both moved back to New York in upstate New York at Cornell and Ithaca. And um, that ultimately led us to um, a position that she was offered in Western Australia, which is like, furthest place from New York possible. And, you know, us being young and not having much, you know, to keep us tied down, we were like, let's do it, you know? And uh, so we, we just, we just took two suitcases and moved to Perth, Western Australia, which pretty much started my photography career. Um, I, I was never a big photographer, but I always loved animals. I kind of like Michael, you know, I just loved looking at animal behavior and learning why they do things. And, um, uh, and I was able to work with horses for a while, which helped with that. And but um, Perth um, just opened my I mean, the wildlife there, the 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 bird life is just phenomenal. I mean, you just couldn't like I, I wouldn't consider myself a birder. But when you live in Australia, you just kind of you just automatically are because it's just phenomenal stuff. And and the reptiles and lizards <laughs> they and find you. Yeah. yeah, they find you. I mean, just the colors of these parrots and, and these uh, splendid fairy wrens just like so vibrant, you couldn't like think of it. Um, and, and oddly enough, I actually got into to reptiles a bit too. Like they have um, like uh, dugites, which are a spotted brown um, snake out there and tiger tiger snakes, which I loved um, taking photographs of. And, and a lot of these, these critters um, would be pretty easy to photograph in the mornings before they get too hot, you know, be an ecto, was it ectotherms? Um, and once they're cool, they're, they're more placid and you can kind of get in there and, you know, not muck around too much, but just get some photos. And I actually ended up taking a, a venomous snake course in the local area just to kind of be safe about it. Because my wife jokes about taking out life insurance policies every time I'd go out and try to get some photos and she'd rather me with the birds. And that's what I was mostly doing with birds. But the other time if I saw a tiger snake out of the corner of my eye, I would try to get some photos and um, and, and that venomous snake course is very helpful, just kind of learning demeanor and a lot like like bears, like everyone has these huge negative um, connotations of, of what they can be and their ferocity and all that. But 
they just want to get away from you all the time, you know. So if you kind of learn how to respect and get a move around them safely, you can you can have some pretty cool interactions. Um, but yeah, so like Australia really opened up our eyes to the wildlife there. And we just kind of um, traveled throughout the country. We were only there for three years from 2012 to 2015. And probably the second year I was like, I need a camera. I mean, this is silly. I, I got to do something. And and, and like we all do, you hear the stories every time you buy this crappy little camera and you think you're good. You don't know how much you're going to use it and whatnot. And and it wasn't good enough. It was, I think it was like Olympus, um, one of the early mirrorless micro four thirds. And I was like, oh, I can get this extra reach, you know, because it's all this. And it just wasn't doing what I wanted. And so I, I kind of jumped into the, the Canon 7D Mark II with the 100 to 400, which kind of every amateur wildlife photographer got. And, it, and for a reason, it's a great kit that got me for the last maybe 10 years, I kind of just you know, uh, made incredible images and, and I was thankful to be able to do it. And, it's, and for an amateur, it's a big jump, you know, putting that kind of money in something like that. But, um, and I wasn't sure if I'd stick with it, but yeah, to kind of anywhere we traveled through Western Australia. And, and just to give you an idea, Western Australia is, is probably, I think about a quarter of all Australia. And if you want to look at Australia, it's the same size as the US. And the only bit problem is there's nothing in the middle. Like we have all the Midwest, but it's, it's, I think it's something like 80% of the population is like a hundred kilometers from the coast of the whole country. So there's not a lot in the middle, but Western Australia is so massive um, that it's, it would be like from California all the way up to Oregon and then maybe touching into Montana, like that whole chunk of of the West side there is all one state. And it's pretty remote too. Um, so Perth is still a big city. It's 1.6 million, but you can get out pretty quick to some remote places. Um, but you got to drive, you know, like it's, it's far. You're spending 10, 12 hour days to get to some of these amazing places. We, we were fortunate to go all the way up the coast one time to Exmouth and swam with whale sharks, which was just a phenomenal experience. Um, and then um, we kind of did more flying to other regions of Australia to, to, to travel and, and see things, but we just kind of pick them off um, between work and stuff. But that was kind of the catalyst, I'd say, to my wildlife photography. Yeah. So then take us from there to where you're at now. Right. Okay. So um, from, from uh, both of our careers were fine. We didn't love them, but they're okay in Perth. And we, but we loved like everything else we were doing. Um, but my, my wife was offered a partnership position in New Zealand, which, um, was kind of, um, too good to be true to be a, an equine surgeon there and, um, an owner of a practice. And, um, and we, we, we really didn't want to leave Australia. We loved Australia, but, um, like it's all about compromise, right? Like different parts of your life, you're trying to balance, you know, Brandon, you got a kid and like all these different things, you're trying to figure out what, what can you utilize the best at that time and try to mix things in and out. So we decided to make the jump. And and the way we looked at it is, is um, Australia and um, well, I should say New Zealand is kind of like a combination of Australia and Canada. My wife's Canadian. So she's got the kind of the Commonwealth, um, already in her, but uh, that New Zealand kind of represents a little both where you got the exotic place of being far away in this island, but you still have a, a three seasons maybe 
where in Australia, we kind of had like hot and not as hot, you know, it's like two seasons, you know, the wet and the dry and all that stuff, the extremes. But um, so, so New Zealand kind of kept us within, within that Australasian region. And we've since, we've been here um, nine years and we actually became citizens and, and all that and have a house and, 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 and been enjoying it. But what New Zealand allows us to do is fly over to the East Coast in a three hour flight, you know. It's, it's just the availability of access Maybe. that we can still do. Um, so, yeah, we've been here, and, and, and New Zealand's a phenomenal country, um, but they, um, they, they lack wildlife. <laughs> um, there's, there's a massive hole in my uh, wanting for ph- photography. We have some really unique species of, 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 of birds and, you know, and, and parrots, and um, I'm a big kind of raptor guy. And so there's three species here, which is which is cool, but it's not, you know, 20, 30, like North America, or what have you. Um, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, so we, we, we've been here and enjoying it. And um, it's been it's it's been a great like way of living, just general Australia, New Zealand, just the, the time off, you know, four weeks um, paid leave is just like mandatory. And it's, it's, it's a really good quality of life. But I do miss um the uh, charismatic megafauna, you know, of Alaska and, and, and all these things that um, that kind of draw me back home a little bit. So, but we're kind of, it's, we're, maybe, I, I think we're eventually going to move home, you know, in the next, you know, several years, but we're kind of slowly working our way back. Um, but the cool thing is we could do amazing trips from here, you know, like, um, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but, you know, we had a phenomenal trip to Alaska in this, this last uh, J- June, July. Um, so, but we can still, you know, base down here and, um, New Zealand actually puts us a little closer to North America than Perth did. Perth would be two 12 hour flights, get back to New York, which would be, which is bonkers. Um, but whereas Auckland, they just doing a direct flight now, which is 15 hours direct, which is, which is crazy long. But, um, so I just did, I went home for Christmas in New York and, um, went to B&H, got my new R5, which, which we could talk about later. But um, that was a 15-hour direct flight <laughs> nice. um, and then 17 hours on the way back. And, um, like, it's, you can, it's long, but you don't lose bags. Um, there's no connections you got to stress about. And, um, and my parents are only half hour from the airport, so it's without traffic, which – so it's, it's good. So, like, um, we've, we've had incredible adventures down here um, in the Australasian region. Um, when we were in Australia, we went down to South Australia um, off of Port Lincoln. Um, they, we went cage diving with great whites, which was which was pretty phenomenal. It was uh, a long boat trip out with with some some rough seas, and they say they weren't rough, but we were <laughs> we were going up and down pretty good, um, and got to spend um, forty five minutes in a cage with four or five you know, three, up to three to five meter great whites, you know, just some, some awesome, awesome fish. And, uh, and yeah, we've done, done so many incredible things down, down in this area. And, um, that's been, it's been a great journey for us. Yeah. So are great whites like the, was that the pinnacle of the fish for you or was it the whale shark? Which one was it? Yeah. I think my, my wife would say the whale shark and, and, um, the great white was, was, was pretty awesome. But the problem is you're, you're in a cage and it's, I'm trying to remember. I don't know if I'd know Fahrenheit, but it was, um, I think it was like, it'd probably be like just above freezing in water, you know, and you're not moving for 45 minutes. You have a seven mil wetsuit, but like, um, 
it's pretty awesome. I mean, like your adrenaline's running and all this stuff, but like it's it's you're cold after a while. You're kind of ready to come up, you know. And and thankfully the boat's outfitted with hot showers right. and it's um it's it, it was a it was like a three day three hour ride out to the Neptune Islands where there's seal colonies. Um and you kind of dock in behind one of the islands to kind of get away from some of the the wake and um or the you know the waves and stuff and um and then yeah you just take turns as it's quite a few people. It's about 40 something people on the boat and you take turns of six going down. And, um, there's two, um, two lines, hook lines, they call them with a hex head of, of six. And you're, you're all down there with, with, with snorkeling and stuff like that, or a uh, scuba diving, um, breathing underwater there. And, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty phenomenal. And the visibility was really good. Thankfully we, something like 18 meters and you could, you could see them quite, quite far away. And I did the whole GoPro thing, you know, and, I didn't, I didn't do any stills. My, my buddy next to me did some stills, which he, uh, he gladly let me use in, in, in the book, the memoir, memoir I wrote about our time down in Australia. But, um, yeah, that was, that was, for me, that was probably better. The, the up in Ningaloo reef. So the way Australia is, um, everyone's probably heard of the Great Barrier Reef, which is the Northeast coast. And on the far opposite side is Ningaloo reef, which is, I would think just as spectacular, but less populated of people coming in tourists and stuff. And that's where people go to see the whale sharks. Um, the whale shark was more of a full day where we, we could, um, snorkel at three different sites while spotter plane was up looking for these whales. And these whales just kind of, um, I, I guess technically sharks are, yeah, but, uh, they're, they're kind of just up top near the water and they're just going straight. So they're kind of finding them and that they bring the boat and they drop you right in front of it. And, um, and then you kind of make, a bit of a runway on both sides and they just swim right, be, right in between you, which was pretty phenomenal, but you could do all these other snorkels before you get to that point. And I remember on one early on, we're just heading out from the coast and we see a big old tiger shark in the water. And we're like, wow, that's, that's crazy. You know? And only probably like two minutes later, they're like, Oh, we're at our destination to go hop in the water. We're like, uh, are you serious? Is this, are you sure that's all right? And, um, but yeah, like we, you know, there's no negative experiences. It was just phenomenal seeing all the, the colors and, um, and, you know, and the, the different species to see down that we saw leopard sharks, which is, which is pretty cool. They're more, I think, bottom feeders that they were pretty, pretty placid animals. But, um, yeah, those two things were, I would probably say that the great white, just cause I built it up, you know, so much. And, um, but, but all that stuff collectively, I right. will say did not meet what, um, how good our Alaska trip was, you know? And, um, and I think that just shows in how much <laughs> anticipation and, you know, I've read, I don't know, 30, 40 books on Alaska, grew up going to museum of natural history, looking at these big old brown bears, you know, posing the Bronx zoo. They had a couple Kodiaks that I'd go all the time since I was like six years old, wanting to go see this, this final front, this last frontier, you know, and, and, and Katmai and all these, this stuff. And, um, yeah, so it's, we've done some, my wife and I were fortunate to do some pretty cool things, but, um, I think we both agree this Alaska was our best trip yet. Yeah. Well, let's, so let's talk about that. So hold on, hold on. Before you go to Alaska, let's do the book because yeah, so much sure. of what you just referenced, yeah. like that whole first chapter in your book is the whale shark, the whale and shark yeah. traveling. And the one thing that I remember the most is, you were saying something about you saw a bird, a raptor, 
The wedge-tailed eagle. An yeah. eagle flying out of the car. Yeah. And you're wearing your sandals or you're wearing some Board flip-flops shorts. or something. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, you, and then here you are talking about venomous snakes, but you're not paying attention to what's on the ground at all. You're going yeah, yeah. to find the bird. That yeah. to me is like, yeah, I mean, I don't have a problem with snakes, but man, they can hide so easily. And oh, you, know, yeah. you just Especially step like right next to them. Not, yeah. And you don't even know. Well, yeah, Australia has like, yeah, they have like some of the work. They have like Taipans. They have death adders, right? They have. Yeah. Well, the like king brown. Dugite, or brown Dugite, that's a venomous snake too, right? Yeah. They're all, yeah. Tiger snake, right. copperhead. They have, yeah, they're, they're, um, everyone has their own list of like the top 10 most venomous snakes in the world. And um, they all have their own whatever, but it's yeah. Seven or eight are usually Australian species, you know? And, um, and, and, and often if you can, it's, if you can just kind of, if you walk heavy, you can often avoid just like saying, Hey bears, you know, they can't hear, but like, if you walk heavy, they can often feel vibrations and stuff. So that can help with most of them, but then the ones like death adders who are just sitting there and just waiting on camouflage, you know, and, and, you know, you can get in issues, but like all this is, is built up of, um, these things can happen. Like bear attacks can happen, but we all, you know, you guys know, like there's so many precautions. It's so rare that you only hear the bad stories and stuff like that. Right. And, and when we moved to Australia, there was, um, I'm not going to remember the, um, number right but it's something like seven or eight great white fatalities on humans in the last year in western australia which was nuts but like of course you know we're fine and the ocean's massive but like that stuff lingers you know so yeah you gotta kind of educate yourself but but when you see like a beautiful wedge-tailed eagle and man you're you're getting out of the car and you're running you're slamming on the brakes and you got to get a photo and um and thankfully he wasn't i this was early in my career what if i call it a career but so i didn't know what i was doing and, and thankfully he didn't fly away and, and they often perch low which is great for us right so i can get kind of nice shots because the trees aren't that big I, there are eucalypts but not more when you get further in inland or you know away from kind of the greener areas you don't you get a lot more lower trees and stuff like that so you can get some pretty cool angles um rather than you know pointing up you know, at, at, at the golden or uh, bald eagle flying or whatever. Yeah. Well, and I loved, uh, I love the story of you getting back to the vehicle though, because that would be something that I would do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because you remember you left the door open, right? Yeah. And sure. It's like, yep, I've done that. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, the, the bush flies aren't the, the, like the, the bugs you hear in Alaska where they're going to just rip all the blood from you. They're after moisture. So they're going to, they're just in your eyes and your nose and they're, they're just a pest and, and to get rid of them is, is, is quite the challenge, you know? So mm-hmm. it's, they're just trying to like, they're in the, you're in the desert, right? The outback. So they're just trying moisture. That's all they don't want. They can, I mean, they're just trying to get what they can do to survive. So um, that's more the annoyance. And th- in the book, I, there's this like Australia salute, they say, where you, you break off a branch and you're just walking around and s- smacking around your face just to get these, get some reprieve from all these flies. That's so so you were saying uh, there's the venomous snakes. How many yeah. did you actually see in the wild? Because I love photographing snakes and or yeah, yeah. Them if I can find them. But just like you said, it's really hard to find them a lot of times. So, you know, well, I can go out in March. April sometimes in Colorado and I know where there's some rattlesnake dens and I can find them. 
But if yeah. you're going out in the middle of the summer, there's some places where you can go, but that's not, it's not an easy thing. It's much easier to go find a deer or an elk or something like that. So in your travels around Australia, were you able to find some and film them or photograph them? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely was. I mean, I could, I could put you on a spot like tomorrow kind of thing. And I'd almost guarantee, you know, see a tiger snake. So where we lived in, in Perth, um, there's a lot of little lakes around and tiger snakes, um, they're primarily eating frogs. I think it's something like 90% of their diet, right? So they like um, tall grass on the edge of water sources where frogs want to live. And um, this is probably, I'm going to go back and forth. I, if I say kilometers, I'm, I apologize. We've lived down here so long, but um, a couple of miles at most from our house, there's um, there, there was this great lake that had good bird life, but but a lot of um, a lot of tiger snakes. And I would say if I had to guess, maybe 30 to 50, like just around that lake area. And it's it's pretty dense area, so you're not going to see them all. But um, just I'd imagine same with you guys, you know, and Eric with with birding and stuff. You tune your eyes into to what you're looking for. So once you start seeing things, you kind of know what to look for. So you'd be walk, walking along the path in the morning and you're looking for little pockets of sun and stuff. And then I could I could. I don't say every time, but maybe every other, every third time on a walk, I, I would, I would definitely see a tiger snake and, um, because they're out basking, you know, and if they're, they had a meal overnight and they're just trying to help, you know, digest that food and, or just getting the heat up for that day. Cause during the middle of the day, you're not going to see them cause it's too hot. It's the extreme, but like in the morning, the crepuscular hours, if you will, like you're going to see them just kind of on the edge of path, edge of grass and stuff. And you definitely, when the tall grass is kind of like, the scariest area to walk through, right? Cause that's that you just don't know where you're going to step on, but there there's enough, like this is all suburb area where we were. So it's just kind of like little local lakes that have grass around it. Um, and you're going to see them quite a bit. And I, um, I, I don't know, I probably photographed like um, 30 or 40 different tiger snakes. And once I took that course, um, I actually um, manipulated them into the sun a little bit with, with, a, with a, um, a snake hook, but I, I, I regret doing that. And I probably won't, wouldn't do it again for my wife's sake. Um, but I, I kind of learned their behavior quite well and just kind of tried to be as cautious as I could. Um, but yeah, it was, um, it was, it was easy to see him when he knew, know where to look. And, and, um, the other ones were like the Dugai, the Eastern, uh, the Western Brown or the spotted snake. They, the spotted brown, they, they would be a bit more um, unpredictable and I would never want to kind of mess with them just because they're faster. And just, I don't know. I, I, I didn't know what I was getting into as much. So, um, and this sounds like I did it a lot and I would say maybe just um, a handful of weekends each year, kind of taking some photos, mostly looking for birds, but I'd kind of keep my eye. It was tricky because when you're looking up for birds, but you're also looking down too. Right. So it's that combination of, like your head's on a right. swivel all day long. Right. So did you wear snake boots? Cause I was on a shoot a couple of years ago and we were in Texas and the production company made us wear snake boots. Cause we had the Eastern diamondbacks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, that gave me a little bit of comfort, especially, you know, when you're dealing with like a diamondback, which would be a pretty severe bite if you got them. And we did see them out there, but you know, like you said earlier, they don't want, they don't want to waste their venom on you if they don't have to. 
I mean, if you yeah. step on one, of course you're going to get bit. Or if you step a little too close, or if you start messing around with them, you're just asking for it. But if you are just paying attention, you know, other than just a wrong step somewhere, and they're so camouflaged that a lot of times it's hard, yeah. to, or they're curled up underneath the bush somewhere, and you just are not paying attention. So we had to wear the snake boots. Did you guys have to wear them, or did you wear them down there? Yeah. Or did you just not worry about it? No, no, I totally did. Um, I had my uh, A-Solo hiking boots, which were pretty dense. And then I actually bought a pair of snake gaiters from the U.S. Um, that went up to my knees. Um, they were, I think they're rated more for like rattlesnakes. But, I mean, we have the elapids, um, the front fang snakes in, in Australia. But um, I definitely did. And, um, you know, I, I wasn't... Um, I wasn't reckless, you know, I was, I was doing the best, I trying to educate myself and, and being as safe as I could, but I would definitely, I, I wouldn't, I would avoid the tall grass and stuff too, but I, you yeah, know, I had those snake gators on and, um, you know, and I, they give you a bit of, um, reassurance, but it, I still wouldn't do anything stupid, you know, even with them on and, you know, keeping, you know, always, you know, like we try to do and you know, have the best interest for the animal, you know. So not taking far and I wouldn't be moving them much, right, just, right. you know, a little bit, you know, into the open for a few shots. And, and they often, you know, we're, we're really, you know, fine with it. And if they wanted to really flee, I just, you know, just let them go. I'm not going to, you know, pester them. Cool. All right. Yeah. So I just have one more question and it's yeah. more about the book. Why one. did you write the book and when did you write it? And then after we get through the book, then we can go into the Alaska. And once you yeah, yeah. more conversations about it. I was going to ask. Yeah. Similar question. I have a little bit of a similar question, so maybe you can answer it all at once. Sure. Um, As far as like us trying to do storytelling, filmmaking, and that's the thing I'm struggling with is, I guess, the writing aspect or developing a story and keeping it interesting. So in that process of talking about writing the book, maybe you could talk about like, how do you, things that are just your day-to-day life that maybe could seem mundane to people how do you find those interesting things or do you have people that help you like identify stuff because there's a lot of story. i mean all these things the snake the snake course was in the book and it's called yeah. what, way down under and you talk yeah. about you know all those different experiences but how did you i'm reading it thinking like well these are all awesome stories and things that i can imagine us doing during some of our travels but how did you get to the point of thinking that these are the stories i need to put down on paper yeah, it's a good question, Eric. Thanks. Um, you know, the, the book started out as a blog. And when we moved to Australia, we wanted to keep our family um, connected with what we were doing. And um, we learned pretty quickly that we were doing some pretty cool stuff. So I was like, I we have to somehow catalog and, and share and maybe make people jealous. What, you know, they can take out they want. But um, so it was a blog for a year. And um and it kind of um, kind of sat there. And um, so so we would go on a trip. Uh, my wife would take notes. I would take photos. And I would just kind of um, jot something down. Like um, there's, there's several stories in the book where either I do something stupid or it's funny. And it's like, man, that would, that would make a good line. Or that would make, you know, something, somebody's going to laugh. Even if it's at me, that's fine. But um, that's, that's good enough to put in. And I just jot down, um, I think in my, in my phone and notes or something like, like just the idea or the concept of that and never thinking of the book per se, but of, of the blog, I always wanted to write a book. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't consider myself a writer. Um, 
you know, in college, I was introduced to some poetry classes, which were cool, but I never really kind of buckled down and wrote anything of any substance over than like four pages in university. Um, so writing a book, you know, was it 260 plus was, was quite different than I expected. But what really, t- to answer your question, what really spearheaded all this was COVID. Um, so in, in New Zealand, we, um, we locked down twice and each one was about six weeks. And um, we're fortunate to be in a position where yeah. we're kind of outside um, in a rural area so we could kind of walk and, and we're not trapped in, in our house per se. But um, I was like, this is like, I, this is a sign. Like there's no better time to just sit down and write. You know, if I'm going to do it, let's, let's just do it. And so I had this really poorly written, loose draft of a blog with photos. Um, and so what I did is I just kind of went, I, the book does have a trajectory of a, a beginning and an end, but a lot of chapters you can just pick up and read on their own and just enjoy the mini adventure for itself. But what, um, what if I had to do like a proper book, I needed to kind of tie in a bit of my background, um, where I grew up, what drew me to animals, what drew us to Australia, um, why we love Australia and all these stories. So what I did is I just kind of um, like the hardest part about writing a book is just discipline. It's just like um, sitting down and doing it every day. And what I would do is I would literally write like 10 hours. I'd, I'd kind of get up in the morning and just kind of just start cranking away and, and you know, take breaks, do a bit of exercise. But um, through that day, I would just, I don't know, try to do eight to 10 hours and, and not all that would be good. And a lot of it wasn't good um, until I got a bunch of chapters together um, to what I thought was good. And then I um, fortunately, I had a, a friend who was a publisher in um, in the States and he, he had an independent publishing company. Um, and so he linked me up with an editor. And then I quickly realized that what I thought was good was, was not good. Um, but it was, but that's what you have to do, right? You have to start somewhere, you know, and, um, and, and that's kind of where the process began. Like it started as, um, a COVID thing and then two years of just weekends, 10 hour, eight hour, whatever I could do every weekend, I would just crank away and just start writing and then send it off a chapter. And then the editor would send back and say, you know, this is good. Or, you know, we can change this and that. And, um, it's, it was a very challenging experience very long and hard, but like, it's something that, um, I kind of don't like to quit on things, you know, like once you, like I have these passion projects, like photography, hopefully the rest of my life, you know, um, we won't get into it, but I did falconry for four years, which was amazing, um, to learn about, learn about raptors. Like that's a whole nother thing I learned about. And then, you know, we're the horses and, 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 and I do these wood carvings. So I have all these passions, but like I try to finish them as much as I can or learn as much as I can from them. So once I got all this really good information put together in a book form and, and communicating back and forth with this editor in New York, um, I found out that the publishing company went under and I was like, oh, so what do I what do I do now? I have this like what I think is a decent book. And, and, and they helped me. They did tremendous. They helped me get it to where it needed to be. Um, but then I said, well, I guess I kind of have to go self-publishing, you know, and, and that's fine. Now, I'm not I never wrote this book intended to sell, you know, millions of copies or whatever. But it was it was more of a really glorified 
experience for like-minded people, wildlife photographers or family and friends who like maybe want to visit Australia or just want to laugh at the silly things we did or, or um, the adventures and maybe a bit of inspiration, if I, you know, and um, that all kind of came together. And, and then the actual literally like um, having the book printed and, and that whole second part, once it's written, that's one challenge, but actually post-production was this whole other animal that I found more frustrating because um, I had to print, oh, I didn't have to, but I, I printed in New Zealand and I printed in the US. So two different currencies, two different measurement systems, two different book formats, you know, like all these different things. And I'm only printing like a hundred for each one, but like, like I can send what I think is going to be the same to one and then send it to the other and they're going to come different and that's fine. But um, that's a challenge in itself. And just how the, how they, what font to choose, how um, like, like I, I, I'd often get copies back that, that like things are shifted, not how you want. And how do I express to them that I, I want the font, you know, over, there's all these little things that you'd have no clue. Just like, I'm sure you guys learned and, you know, doing filming early on, like you don't know the questions until they come up. Right. Or Feels very uh, similar to a lot of the video editing and starting all that. <laughs> and, and unfortunately there weren't like YouTube um, couldn't answer a lot of the questions that I had, unfortunately. Um, but some, some did, but um, yep. yeah, so it was a big challenge. And then, um, yeah, so it, I, to your other questions, it, um, I finished it in probably, I started in 2020, finished it in 2022-ish and printed it early that year. So um, it's kind of been written for about three years. Is that right? For two years, something like that? Yeah. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed reading all the stories. Uh, you were saying you were worried that maybe it would be too depressing for me here in Alaska in the wintertime, but it was really nice to <laughs> kind of live vicariously through those experiences. And I could imagine, you know, how all the, you know, traveling internationally, there's always those like, oh, crap moments. Am I doing something wrong? Or, you know, uh, I'm going into some environment that I'm, it's so foreign to me. And yeah. I think you captured all those moments really well. I'll tell you the one thing that stuck out with me, which I don't think you would expect, but uh, at least for my life where I'm at, trying to cut back on working very much and just focus on, you know, film and life locally here. But there was one line that you said that's going to resonate with me. Uh-huh. Unless I get paid to go do this, you talked about buying a one-way ticket to Australia. And I thought, I don't think I'm going to take another international trip unless it's a one-way ticket. And so yeah, yeah. I'm thinking now, like, Unless someone's going to pay me to go somewhere, I need to find the place that I'm so excited about that I'm just going to go there and then I'll come home when I'm ready. So that was yeah, one I, thing that really stuck with me. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and to that point, Eric, we, we went to Australia, like I said, with, with two suitcases each, thinking we we're going to be there for a year. Like one-way ticket, we have no idea. We, um, we, we had a Yale Labrador Denali, which ties back to Alaska, but... Um, and we left him in the States mm-hmm. for a year. And, and, and then we're like, all right, we love it here. I, I thought I was going to spend my life, rest of my life in Perth. You, you just don't know where things take you. And then we shipped him out, which was quite an ordeal because there's no rabies in Australasia. So that that's a long process. But we got him out there. And um, and then, you know, and, and he lived as you know, he lived in four countries. He had a good life. But um, 
So yeah, you just don't know where it takes you. Like, um, <laughs> I never thought I'd be in New Zealand for this long, you know? And, um, yeah. I wrote a book in Australia because like, I'm so passionate about a place and loved it so much. And, you know, and, and, and people often ask me, would you write a book about New Zealand? Cause that's, you know, you've lived, I've lived here for nine years and only three in Australia. And it's, there's something about, um, this has been a phenomenal place for us to live. And, um, but there's something like certain places just give off this, like Alaska, just give off this, this aura that, that just pulls mm-hmm. you, right. That, that you just want to read books and books about it and, and have these. And to me, a, a place needs to have some sort of fauna that um, captivates you, scares you, you know, and, and intrigues you um, and just like gets you out of your comfort zone. And, and it's bigger than you. Um, and, and those are the places that um, I, I want to visit more and spend more time in. And it's, um, and as much as we love our time down here, I think my wife and I are slowly kind of shifting back to North America. You know, our families are getting older and nephews and stuff are getting older. And, 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 and it, I don't know if I would have had the same allure of North America if I hadn't left, you know, so looking back on that, it's kind of, it opens your eyes up yeah. to things that you didn't know how good you had. Like Colorado, I only spent maybe under two years there. And I'm like, why didn't I go to the Rockies every single day? You know, bighorn sheep, like all these things I just didn't do. You know, I, you know we went out and did stuff, <laughs> right. but like, yeah. you know, we didn't do enough, yeah. you know? So um, I, th- I think we're coming full circle, but t- to your point, yeah, I think you got to just, um, it's scary as hell sometimes, you know? And, you know, I, I definitely suffer anxiety from things, but like when you jump, like, like, um, like I know we're going to talk about soon, but my Alaska trip, I met four unbelievable contacts, you know, and now you got like you as well. And it's just like a two week trip opened my potential world up to a new career or to new possibilities. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's scary and, and it doesn't always work, but like, sometimes you got to just take the jump and thankfully I had a partner to do it with, you know, so yeah eric it's interesting that you say that because that's been my whole thing i've been to all the continents on the planet except for australia and it was that exact quote Mm -hmm. it's i if i'm gonna go there on my own dime i'm gonna go for as long as i want to go because it really intrigues me yeah so you know even from when i was a little kid but if somebody pays me to go then yeah you can buy me a round trip ticket (laughs) well that's true too because i like you know we moved up here to Alaska from Ohio and I, we didn't explore a lot of the country. And now as much as I want to spend a lot of time here in Alaska, I am always thinking about all those places that I haven't seen just in the U S so I'm not in any big hurry to go anywhere. So yeah, I think you do, you know, it develops you in a different appreciation for things and that'd be exciting to go back and chase that. All right. So should we talk about Alaska? I think before we started recording, we were talking about our shared thing here. Uh, I've been to New yeah. Zealand and been to the um, Miranda Shorebird Center and yeah. checking out the uh, Godwits, the Bartail Godwits that fly nonstop for a week up here to Alaska. So, so I, I guess, <laughs> how was your, uh, what I guess was the main thing for you when you came up here? Was the bears and birds or what all got you to Alaska excited about it? Yeah, I alluded to it earlier. And as, as a kid, I mean, just infatuated with, coastal brown bears i mean like grizzlies interior grizzlies like you know same species and all that but just these coastal brown bears and you know brandon you did the trip you know what a couple of years ago and you know been on the pod and and i just listened to you know wild and exposed stuff 
um, that podcast. And I just, the allure of it and, and just like a place that's like un, untouched, you know, in, in quotes. Um, so there's, there's so many, I mean, you know, moose, you know, doll sheep, there's so many amazing mammals and stuff. And, and I would say um, I grew to love birds in Australia, but like, if a brown bear was out my window, I'm not going to shoot a photo of a bird. You know, like it, there's certain things you're, you're drawn to. So um, I would say I would say the bears were the biggest thing that drew me there. And um, my, my wife loves animals and adventure as well. But um, we we kind of lined up a really great two week trip um, around as much as we could um, around two different trips for bear viewing and knowing how capricious the weather could be in Alaska we booked two flight trips on purpose. Um, and the first one was supposed to be from Anchorage out to, um, was it silver, silver salmon? Is that, is that one of the other bigger ones? Um, on Lake Clark National Park. Yeah, exactly. That one canceled or, um, early in our trip. And we had, we have, um, uh, two of our friends, they're both, um, well, they're both wildlife biologists. Well, one's a wildlife biologist, they joined us for the trip and we booked a cabin in Lake Clark for four days. Um, not for, for necessarily bear viewing any of that, but we just, so we, we got our experience of Lake Clark out of um, Fort Ellsworth. Are you familiar with, it's a small town and mm-hmm. um, on, on across, yeah. uh, across from the lake there, there's, there's a little cabin the guy had. So we had a nice little um, time there, but um, the other bear trip from Anchorage to Lake Clark um, was canceled from weather. So, a lot of pressure and a lot of money was riding on this one trip to from Homer <laughs> to Katmai. Um, and a lot of that was um, Dave Backrack, who a bear guide who was um, talked about or was on the podcast of previous and wild exposed. Um, we lined up with him and Beluga air. Um, uh, thanks a lot to, to Michael. And I mean, I, I listened to all those podcasts. There's about three or four bear ones with drew that I just listened over and over just to get me all, excited and and um and thankfully that trip um happened um so um we had a phenomenal i mean we did i I won't talk about all our you know hikes around um eagle river and 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 all these other trips but we we drove from anchorage down to homer um uh and and had some good sightings of black bear and and moose and, and stuff like that but homer we just fell in love with homer i mean that's we went to Seward, but the, the weather was horrible and you just couldn't see anything. You couldn't see the mountains and all that. And um, Homer and Seward, they, they both seem to have that a big kind of mobile home, kind of touristy kind of area. But Homer just seems very like livable. Like I could just I could I could see like buy a house here, you know, and then you kind of like there is a little like like restaurants and that kind of stuff and out in the spit and tourist stuff. But we loved Homer. Um, weather still wasn't great, but it's Alaska. You know, you know what you're expecting. Um, so uh, we, we lined up, um, this trip and then we, um, before we got to, um, the actual, uh, I, I can't say runway, the lake with the flow planes, the, they, they warned us that our fifth person is going to be a, uh, a YouTuber or like somebody documented. It. And I was just, I was mad. I was like, it's going to be this teenage girl just YouTubing this whole experience Ruined my only bear trip, maybe of my life. I was so mad. So we get there, and um, and it's only five people, right? So it's five people. 
and a, an old the Hovland Beaver, which is an incredible uh, float plane. And um, so my wife and I, and then two other people were from Perth, Australia, our age travelers. I was like, this is ridiculous. And then the, the <laughs> no. one person, yeah. And the, and the <laughs> one person who was with us, that the girl was um, Acacia Johnson, the National Geographic photographer. I was like, how can this be possible? Like, what are the, like, I could have booked this the next day, the day before. And, you know, I'm, t- I'm talking to Dave, the bear guide, who, um, who's just an awesome guy, great at what he does, really um, quiet, collected, mm-hmm. you know, and, and informative, you know, and, and just kind of puts that on the land when we go there. And the bears really respond to kind of, um, you know, what he does and just, <clears throat> just, just great start already. And I, and I brought the, so as you can see, like one of my newer purchases, is the 600 um, F4, which is why I still had a 7D Mark II forever because <laughs> all the money went into that lens. Um, I brought that with me um, for birds and, and whatnot. <laughs> but I was really like, do I bring this, you know, and um, I brought it all the way and I was going back and forth and um, I ended up bringing it with me and um, I'm glad I did. And but I mostly shot the 100 to 400, which is per- it's just great. You know, you can, you know you're at hundred mil sometimes it's unbelievable. Yep. Um, and so, so, so we get on the plane right. and everything's right. great. And, um, our flight, beautiful. We fly over and uh, there's, there's a whale carcass on the shore. I don't know how far that was. Well, I won't bury the lead there. I won't say too much about that, but, um, there are some bears on, on the carcass. Um, <laughs> and we, we flew over and landed. The first thing we see when we're on the beach is two wolf tracks side by side running up the coast and we're mm-hmm. like this is this doesn't happen i know it's alaska but to see a wolf you know the people who do this trip sure. all the time they just don't see wolves that much and like this is getting better by the moment um overcast day great for photography you know because you know it, it would have been bright by then i'm sure and you know we get up just up into the sedge meadow and sure enough um bears everywhere you know like right away three four massive coastal brown bears just doing their things as just like cows like as people describe just eating away not even paying us attention and you know habituated bears is just a like you feel like you're cheating the system somehow where you can walk among these animals and they you know just the power and strength and 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 what they can do and they can just it's just phenomenal that habituation can can exist you know we can kind of cheat cheat the system and be amongst them and and just kind of see them without them hopefully changing behavior too much, you know, which is the goal, right? So we get up there and, you know, and, and Dave kind of explains, right. you know, we're small group, walk slowly, you know, just kind of bears. They've been doing this for 30 years, you know, and um, just kind of predictable um, maneuvering around. And they're going to kind of do their thing. And, and, and maybe we'll get lucky, you know, with some close experiences, you know, encounters. And maybe we won't, you know, we just don't know. So we get there and sure enough, you know, we get some, I don't know, um, 50, 100, 100 yards kind of stuff, just phenomenal and um, just great stuff and just working our way around. And um, I don't know, we would have been about two hours just kind of taking time with each bear, just and, and Acacia, um, she she's kind of filming, doing her thing, the National Geographic stuff, which turned out to be an, a great, a great um, contact because um, she just recently posted on National Geographic on one of the reels that um, her job was to document the bear viewing experience. 
so she was kind of like photographing us while we're, you know, it's just, it just surreal. And um, she did a stellar <laughs> job of just kind of, kind of blending into the background yet like doing her own thing. And, um, and it was just great. So, um, and Dave was very informative, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just throwing so many questions at him, you know, and he's, you know, being grateful and, you know, and answering them and stuff. And ultimately we ended up um, sitting on a log in the middle and I, I'm sure uh, Michael, you may know this spot quite well. And we had our lunch there and, you know, very careful to, to bring all our crumbs back with us. So we didn't, you know, create any, um, any, any bears with uh, wanting to come back in that. And, um, and sure enough, I think it was around that time we um, spotted, um, I think it was Dave, Dave spotted this white wolf on the top of a, on the top of a hill. Um, geez, I don't know, maybe a quarter mile, pretty far, but you could see him in the binoculars. You can see him pretty good. And we're, you know, we're just in all of this and, and it starts to howl, you know, like a howling wolf. We're in Katmai National Park and there's this wolf howling and it's, and I'm like, all right, 600 times. So I'm like fumbling through my bag and I only have one lens, which I'm sorry, one, one camera body, which isn't ideal. But, um, and I remember I actually dropped my camera body because my hands were shaking to try to put it on. I have my extender on and I'm laying on the grass with my, my lens on the bag, trying to be as still as I can. Um, so I'm, I'm 1200 millimeters with the 1.6 crop and a 1.4 extender. And, you know, I'm, I'm cranking away, trying to get my shutter speed up so I can, you know, for my motion. And, um, and I think they're pretty decent shots, but looking back on it, there's so much atmosphere in between, you know, there, there's enough light mist in the air that they're, you know, they're not going to be mm -hmm. tack sharp, which I didn't, I've never really shot stuff that distance. And I probably would have learned that in Australia if I was shooting stuff really far, far away with heat, with um, the haze and stuff like that. But um, right. yeah, so, but I, I documented mm -hmm. it, whatever. And, um, but just, just hearing them howl is, is probably one of the top, you know, moments of our life, you know? And um, so that was cool. And then, and I look over mm -hmm. and, and I see, I see Dave texting and I'm like, who is he texting on his, his inreach phone or whatever. Um, and then he kind of points out and there's a couple guys out. Um, well, one in particular out, out in the, uh, in the meadow sitting down with, you know, what, what I, a, a, a CN 20 and, you know, a red and, and all this stuff sitting there. And, um, he goes, Oh yeah, you know, um, I, I wasn't sure, but, um, like Michael Morrow's out here. I was like, are you serious? You know? And, and of course I knew Michael, I feel like I know him well just from the podcast, but you know, I'd never met him or anything, but, um, so he was out there and, um, uh, doing his own thing, filming. Um, he was kind enough, uh, graciously wandered over and, and introduced yourself. But, um, that's kind of, um, there was, a, there was one better spot. Another thing amazing happened after that, but I'll kind of drop in here, Michael, that's kind of where we met at that spot. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. We were, uh, David texted me and I was have a, I have a Zolio and I think he has an inReach or a Zolio or whatever. And, yeah. and he says, Hey, there's somebody here that listens to the wild and exposed podcast. If you get a chance, come over. But and it was the exact same time as the wolf too. Cause I'm watching the wolf. Yeah. I can see these guys watching the wolf. I can watch the wolf howl, but I'm far enough away where you see the mouth open and then you don't hear the howl until, you know, a couple <laughs> of seconds later. And I think I was by myself at that point. You were my by yourself, yeah. Was coming back, yeah. And uh, 
Yeah, as soon as he got back, then I was because I didn't want to have to pack up all my stuff and then go over and say hi. I wanted to just walk over there and leave my stuff, but you can't just leave something out there on the on the flats. So um, as soon as he got back, I went over and said hi, and I didn't know Acacia was there either. Yeah, yeah. And then so I met Acacia and I met Mike and his wife, and it was a pretty cool time. And (laughs) you know, for them to just the day that I had, I mean, I saw what they saw and that is one of the top days of, that I had out there too. And I was out there for 35 days. Yeah. So for those guys to come in on one day and be able to see what they got to see. And like you <laughs> said, you alluded to there's clouds, you know, it wasn't that harsh midday, you know, you get the heat waves coming up off of the, the, the grass, the sedge grass. It was just like the perfect. Yeah. And you still probably had to shoot through some atmosphere to get the wolves, but it's it was probably one of the most perfect days that you could have had as a one day visitor. Yeah, it was just it was just phenomenal. That's um, yeah, Michael, were you camped like further, like further around the corner? I mean, was it a, a group of like four or five of you guys, or what was that setup like for you guys? It was just me for some of it, and then I had an assistant for some of it. And we okay. with the park service, you can only camp for fourteen days, so I ended up having to move my camp. Okay. And uh, I can't remember where I was at at that time. I think I was on the the north side there at that point. But yeah, we were. I was. I got in the best shape of my life. Well, no, I shouldn't say that. I got in really good shape that whole summer because I was walking six, seven, eight miles a day with fifty pounds, and um, it was probably like a two or three mile hike to the camp from from where we were at. And the Park Service has those camps set up so that they are out of the way, and and those yeah. wolves. I saw those wolves a lot. They would they would go up and down that beach all the time. So if you got up early enough, they you would your chances were I would say better than seventy five percent of seeing those wolves if you were willing to get up early and just sit out there. Yeah. So I did that a few times, but it got to the point where I you know they were pretty active in that little, and they must just cruise around. You know they probably work in some area and then they come back, and I just happened to be in an area or happened to be there when they were in that area for a couple of weeks and we were seeing them pretty regularly, which was really cool. I mean, just to see wolves like wolves like that is it's an awesome place and we're going back. So if anybody wants to go on that trip, we got it lined up for September. So if you want to join on a boat trip, a boat based trip now, Eric, I mean, uh, Brandon's done this boat based trip before. And then Mike knows about it. And Eric's done these trips on his own with his wife. So, um, it's a phenomenal place. If you have any interest at all, check out those trips. It's on our website. Okay. So you're cruising around, like you're doing all these traveling, right? What is one or two pieces of gear? And of course, like a camera, right? Where the camera has to go with you. But aside from cameras, what has been one or two pieces of gear that has followed you to Australia, to New Zealand, Alaska? Like what are what are some of the things that you're like, I, w- I won't go anywhere without this stuff? I love gear. Um, I know you do, Brandon, as well. Um, I I would say there's there's not one like I th- I think a good bag is probably like I'm a sucker for bags, but like a good bag is like changes so much of your experience. Um, and I've gone through a couple, um, and now mm-hmm. unfortunately with the 600, like that changes your whole travel experience, right? Like. 
Um, I love that lens, but like it, it really alters how you want to do things. And, and I could, I could, I could, um, put that 600 in, 100 to 400 and the, and a camera body into one bag and, you know, check and carry it on and all that stuff. But, um, I, I would just say like a good bag, you know, and I, I did have something that, um, I did want to show you guys a bit of gear that I got recently that I, I love a 600 mil lens cap that this guy in Singapore made. I think he, mm-hmm. um, I, I'm not sure how he made it, but, um, I think you guys probably have more 400 stuff because of big, oh, large, large, large animals. But what that does is that saves on the like, like the two to 400 Michael that I think you had at one point. And like they have these cloth covers that are kind of bulky and, and this can just, you can take your hood off mm-hmm. and this can just go right on the end. And it saves that much more space um, for like just putting, wedging a yep. 600 into like a bag that is already screaming at the zippers, you know? So um, and it, it was, I think it was like 37 bucks us and right. this guy from Singapore made it. And, um, I don't know if he does other sizes, but I saw a burger have this on, he put it on Instagram and it was just like, that is awesome. And he customizes it for MW and stuff, but that was a cool thing. But to get back <laughs> to your point, I, I would probably just say good bag, you know, it's, it's not the, the sexy answer, but you know, that's what I'd, I'd probably say. I like it. Bags are important. I thought you were going to say sunscreen. Yeah. <laughs> well that, it, Yeah. Like I will say in New Zealand and Australia, the sun here is like today is only like 28 or 82 degrees Fahrenheit. But that sun is so strong. I mean, I even got some color, you know, cutting down some bushes yesterday. And it's just like it's it's crazy. Like whereas in the States, yeah, you can get burned and stuff. But it's I don't know if the hole in the ozone or what what it is, but it's it's intense here. And And it's the good thing is they educate kids really well, quite young with like swimming and sunscreen you know being on the coast of, of both of these you know large islands or what, what have you so um it's yeah sunscreen would be definitely my wife would agree with that answer <laughs> <laughs> i think the one thing that i would add that i always have is the bug net and you alluded yeah. to that in your book about having a bug yeah. net for the bugs yeah. down there and then in That's alaska right. i don't i keep one in my binoculars bag i keep a one in every backpack I always have extras because inevitably somebody shows up and doesn't have one. And it's so miserable when you just are so inundated yeah. with bugs that you can't really think straight. But the minute you put a bug net on, it looks dorky. Sometimes it's hard to shoot, but it just allows you to stay out much longer. So that, oh, yeah, makes experience so one much better. Piece of gear that's always with me is, is the bug net. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, and if you're using a camera, like if you have an FX3 or an FX6 or a red or something like that, and you go to Alaska, your camera needs a bug net because those open fans, it loves those bugs and they just get in there. Have you had to clean your fan out, Michael, ever? Have you not had a bug net and had to film up there? No, I always have a bug net for the camera, but I do know a crew that was out there and they weren't thinking about that and they were in some really terrible mosquitoes and the camera shut down. Did it really? And when they sent it to Red, it was the bugs <laughs> that just made it overheat and the camera shut down. So, yeah, it's it's real. It's a real thing. So you just – you can't have too many. And now, you know, you can go to Amazon or go down to REI or whatever, and you can buy 10 of them for fairly reasonable. And why not put one in every bag you have because you're going to save yourself. And then you are the new best friend of whoever you give one to when you're out in the woods <laughs> yeah. because – if they don't have one and there's nowhere to get one, they they will love you forever. 
that's the one thing on our that's on our cool. trip. It did turn into light mist and little light rain at the end of the trip, but um, that kept the bugs away, you know. And I think that was my biggest concern of the whole thing is like, oh, the bugs is going to ruin it for me, you know. And um, and I, I would have made do, you know, because it's just a great experience. But that was probably one of the um, definitely things that was on my mind. Uh, and we did bring, we both brought our bug nets, but thankfully we didn't have to use them. We brought all, we used all our rain gear though. That's for sure. <laughs> What's ironic is the same place where you saw your first wolf, Brandon, is the exact same place where Mike saw his first wolf. Oh, that's cool. Oh, wow. It's the exact I, same little ridge, the exact same little rock. I did that's not. Cool. Uh, what was I using? I think all I had was a 200 to 600 and I was on a full frame. So I, I wasn't even close to 1200 millimeters yeah. but i still but, got a good one so but that photo is on brandon's uh phone as a screensaver to this day from nice. seeing it so you can tell <laughs> it was a it was an important photo for him michael are you mostly using the 60 to 600 for for your film and stuff when you're not doing big projects or are you using the 200 to 400 i don't use the two to four anymore just because number one it's heavy and then number yeah. two you don't have the range um, yeah. I still have it and I love it and I'll never get rid of it. I think I said it on a podcast not too long ago. If, if Canon would come out with a new version of that, the RF version of that and have it be as light as some of these new 600s or 400s yeah. or whatever, I would definitely get one. And then having the one four in there is really for, for video. It's super helpful as long yeah. as you're shooting telephoto stuff. But the minute you need something wide, if you look at a video that Eric and I, I think we did a little th segment on it called uh, one of our videos on YouTube is called loose ends. And we did a little thing on black bears and Eric and I were both shooting. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, saw that one. This range that gives you that ability to try to get that wide stuff, which I think Eric here is what? A 50 to 400. 50. For a little and bit. that was a Sony, right? Uh, it's a Tamron lens. That's a Tamron. So yeah. That and then the Sigma is it's got to be like the best poor man's CN20 because it's only I think it's still two thousand bucks. Yeah, it's amazing, not expensive, yeah. and it's really sharp. And I've never used it for stills, but for video, it's perfect. So and it's manageable. It and it goes to what you said earlier about fitting in a pack. You know, everything the pack is the perfect answer for that piece of gear that you got to take everywhere. Because and we all have three or four or five different packs because depending on the gear, depending on the shoot, you're going to have a different configuration. So that 60 to 600 just fits and it's not terrible. Eric's got a really good setup because of the FX six isn't as bulky as like the red camera and extra monitor, but I could still get my stuff. We're both using the, what is it, Eric? The F stops. F stops. Yeah. They're big. Actually, Brandon, bag. you're using it too. Yeah. I have a shin too. Yeah. Mine's that bright probably. orange. But. <laughs> yeah, which is fine. <laughs> do you find that there's any dust sucking in? With the with the telephoto, do you find that the, the zoom, it sucks in any dust? I know my 100 to 400 would do that a little bit, where I think the Sony 2 to 6 is all internal. Mm -hmm. But do, do you find any issues with that, with having to clean out the inside? I think the biggest problem is being in Australia because I don't have to shoot and dust too <laughs> yeah, much. Um, yeah, yeah, that, So I don't really know. I mean, I'm constantly if I'm in a if I'm in an environment where I know that that stuff is going to be a problem, I'm always protecting the lens. So I will put a rain cover okay. on in a dusty situation, yeah, just to prevent that kind mm -hmm. of stuff, just to prevent that. And 
it's easier for a video person to do that because we're not running gun like you yeah. can with stills. With stills, it becomes cumbersome to have a rain cover all the time. It's not, and it is, but since we have to take the time to set up a tripod and set everything up, it's not that big a deal just to make sure you have a rain cover on there to protect from dust. And and I shouldn't say, I mean, I've been in Lake Clark, actually that place you were talking about, the Silver Salmon. Yeah. One year we were in there and it was so dusty that I was putting my rain, my rain cover over my backpack because of the dust, because I just didn't want the dust on my backpack. So mm -hmm. just to protect the stuff inside. So there is areas of dust in, even in Alaska that if you don't have the precipitation, so, but I don't have to worry about it as much as I think you would have to in, in Australia, especially, but yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I'm pretty bad with all my gear cause I only have one of everything and it's really, you want to keep it in good work and order. Right. So I'm constantly watching that stuff. I've definitely seen moisture be an issue like out at Brooks camp, you know, people go out with a zoom lens that extends and that breathing brings in moist air and then they come inside the lodge where it's warm and all of a sudden their lens is completely fogged up. And I've definitely seen that, but the dust issue hasn't been in too big of a problem for me. That's either. good. Yeah. So Mike, what's up for you next? Are you, uh, you guys say you're going to like, Think about coming back north at some point. Is that years out or is that, what are you thinking? And then do you have any big trips for photography this coming year? I think we're in the next probably two to three years. Um, we're, we're probably going to move back. Um, we, <clears throat> we're, it's just like I alluded to earlier, just kind of drawn back for family reasons and, and it kind of um, reinvigorated kind of North America uh, wildlife and travel and stuff. And my, uh, my wife's Canadian. So there's probably a decent chance we, we would move to like Western Canada. And, um, if we did that, we would, I mean, we already talked about maybe spending a whole summer in Alaska, you know, and, um, or, or just kind of traveling it, you know, the, the whole, um, you know, Canada has got so many amazing places out West too. Um, most of our family's back East, but, um, <clears throat> that's probably the plan, but it's kind of, you kind of never know, you know, and, uh, um, we're, we're both kind of working and, and trying to save money and we, we might have the potential to, to do it sooner than later, but we're, we're unsure with that. As far as big trips, you know, there's always these kind of uh, proverbial carrots of um, dangling of, of Africa and Patagonia, you know, towards the Panye and, and stuff like that. Um, the nothing like that is set in stone, but I, I think probably we're doing a trip back to Australia in um this coming july i think it is and um that's going to be outside of brisbane so northeast um we've done that a little bit um and so way northeast is that real tropical area where you'll get like um cassowary and platypus and stuff and just starting to get into crocodile country um like most people mm -hmm. don't realize i'd say maybe a fifth or a tenth of australia is crocodile country it's, it's just that top kind of region where the weather, you know, the, it's, it's warm enough up there. We probably won't get up to that kind of that point, but um, there's some, there's a couple of birds. I'm like a gray goshawk, a couple of birds that have eluded me in the past. That'd be nice to kind of get over there. And um, I do as much photography as I can locally here. And, but um, I kind of, I kind of need these trips once or twice a year to keep my, my juices flowing, you know? So that's kind of our next trip in, in July. And I think yeah. we have a, a wedding to go to in Montreal and, um, next next september 
Um, so maybe I'll try to get a couple, who knows what I can get, you know, in the Northeast Canada there, but um, yeah, like nothing. I mean, that like as much as that Alaska trip was, it was also built up for so many years that you kind of wish you could do one of those every year, but for many reasons, mostly financially and time off, it doesn't always work that way, but that's kind of, it's kind of where we are. And um, I've actually liked to maybe start dabbling into a bit more um, videography and, you know, you guys put that, uh, I know Michael, you put that cool video out with the R5 kit on kind of how to make a little video kit going. And, um, and, and Brandon, you had that settings of, of I've already put that in. I'm going to start dabbling with that. I think the only thing I don't have, awesome. which I don't know how much to spend on yet. Cause you always struggle with buying multiple cheap things or one really nice one is like hmm. the fluid ball head, you know, you know, I got the gimbal head, which is not going to work that well, but, um, so who knows with, with that front, but, um, you know, that's obviously the way of the future. And, you know, um, it's a whole nother learning thing, which is, um, between podcasts like yourselves and, uh, and YouTube, you know, it's very doable and just getting out there, you know, and just, just trying stuff and at, at your local pond. And, um, I think James said it in the previous podcast, you know, just, just hone your skills on the great blue heron or whatever it is. And, um, and then just, you know, go from there. But, yeah. um, it's, it's pretty cool that, to tie it all up that the connections I met in Alaska from, from, from you guys to Acacia Johnson, who were, you know, um, I, I'm keeping in contact with, and um, there could be more with her and in, in, in our article and stuff. But, um, and we were able to meet a, a really cool um, wildlife biologist um, in Anchorage as well, who um, I've been in touch with. So <clears throat> it's amazing how a little trip like that can open up all these avenues. And I couldn't tell you, where I'll be in three years or what I'll be doing, but like, um, it's really inspiring to, to listen to podcasts, like, like what you guys put out and knowing what you can do. And, um, and, and, and my connection to Colorado with you guys kind of, it's nice to know where people are going a little bit like, Oh, I've been to Homer, you know, you put that GoPro next to that, you know, the, the sea otter on, on the Homer spit. And I was like, Oh, I know exactly where he was when he did that, you know? So it, it, yeah. it kind of makes it a small world. Yeah. And I think it is a small world, even though, you know, I'm very much an amateur and, you know, my, I'm a furniture maker is my, my full-time job, but, um, I, I, I like to work with my hands, but I, I sure love, you know, being, being involved with, you know, animals, whatever, studying, filming, whatever that can be, you know, I, I hope that's definitely in my future, but, you know, time will, time will tell what that means, you know, cause coming from Australia, you know, 10 years, 12 years later, you, who, who would have thought, you know, we'd, I'd be doing this and whatever. So it's um, having a book out, you know, it's, you just don't know. You just got to kind of yep. enjoy the ride, right? Well, it's been an awesome conversation. We're about an hour 30 into this and I don't want to keep you too long, but man, it has been a lot of fun to talk with you. And, and uh, what we'll do is we'll put some links into the show notes or into the description on YouTube for your book. And then also, if you want to see some of the pictures that Mike has done, he'll send us some pictures and that'll be on the show notes portion portion of the page on our website um, as well. So thanks so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Well, I really appreciate you guys having me. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you.